Hello and welcome to AIPT Comics Podcast, the number one podcast on AIPTComics.com. We are on episode 87. My name is David Brooke. I am your co-host. That means there's another host. And who is it? Hello, my name is Forrest with two R's. I'm here to post, a ca- to post about comics. <laughs> cast cast about pods. I think we both kind of flubbed at this Coming, in coming this to intro. you live from your local swamp. We are the Swamp People. Yeah, I am a doppelganger. On this episode, we have special guest Zach Thompson on to talk about Lonely Receiver. It's out September 2nd. And uh, we're going to be talking all about that book, uh, some of his other recent work, like, I don't know, Undone by Blood? Angel? Maybe? We don't know. You'll have to wait Yondu. and see. It's at- I'm going to bring up Yondu again. Oh, gosh. Well, could Yondu beat up all the characters <laughs> in Lonely Receiver? That's the question we're all wondering right now. <laughs> Um, but yes, this is the comic book podcast, and that means we're going to be recapping the biggest news of the week, uh, picking our favorite comics of the week, and talking about a few uh, of our picks for next week, uh, just to get us excited. Um, and every show starts with the news, and it is a sad, sad piece of news that shocked the world. Friday night, Chadwick Boseman has passed away. Mm-hmm. He's the actor who... We all know and love from Black Panther, but he's done so many other works. Uh, James Brown, Jackie Robinson, Thurgood Marshall. I mean, really iconic black uh, characters. Yes. And yeah, I think to the point that someday someone will be playing him, playing those roles. Mm, um, mm-hmm. given, given how just the sheer amount of important black characters and people that he has personified in the last year or years alone while battling colon cancer yeah just incredibly sad shocking news his struggles weren't publicized at all no no yeah i'm i'm really moved by it i was it's it's very sad and i feel for his family for his co-workers his friends it's a very difficult time you know i keep seeing people point out like you don't know what other people are going through mm. mm-hmm and yeah, totally. I, I, I was reading out like people were criticizing him for being so skinny recently and now they know why. And right. it's like you need to check yourself and, and be more respectful. Right. Absolutely. But yeah, it was a huge loss. And I, I think he's on everyone's minds this weekend and probably a lot longer into the year. Yeah. I was also really stricken by um, the death of power trip singer Riley Gale this week. He died unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. He was only 34 years old. Um, and since we were talking about my love of metal last week, oh yeah, um, it, it really struck me. I had been listening to Power Trip earlier in the day before they posted the news. And so um, just a very difficult time. I've seen a lot, quite a few comics folks are metalheads as well. Folks like Becky Cloonan did tribute art. There's a, a tribute shirt that has already been made with um, donations going to a, a local charity and stuff. And I'm sure that there will be charities for Chadwick as well. Um, and I think that's a great way to honor people's memory and lives and their commitment to important work, uh, both of which those guys did a lot of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this, uh, this, is, uh, this is something that we're all going to have to get through. Yeah. On, on top of the freaking world burning. The end of the... Yeah, man. <laughs> Black Lives Matter, wear your mask. I mean, there's just so yeah. many things. Trans rights just... or human rights. But <gasps> this is an entertainment show. Yeah, let's pivot. So we like to talk about things that make us a little happy in this dark, dark world. <laughs> I said that in like the most darkest <laughs> way. So DC Fandom is our next bit of news. It was uh, the big 
uh, Warner Bros. event on Saturday of last week. Uh, this show recorded before all that news came out. Um, since this is a comic book podcast, though, we're not going to talk about all the movie and video game news. Right. I just want to bring up a little of the comic book news. And there was a little bit of comic book news. First of all, we got to find out a little bit about the Sandman uh, series from Neil Gaiman himself. He talked a little bit about you know making the the pro- how the project came about originally and what DC was looking for. And it's kind of an interesting conversation he had. Um, G. Willow Wilson also joined him. Yes, I was going to say that I think she encapsulated yeah. why Sandman is interesting, mm. perhaps better than anyone I've ever heard. Um, she was basically just saying and piggybacking off Neil saying that it's the idea that there are stories to be told still right that there are unfound stories in the world and that sandman and by extension you know books like the dreaming and stuff dive into those stories and find those stories and in the process uncover more stories to be told yeah and neil even said something like um he wanted to give himself the opportunity to do anything (laughs) right yeah and that's why <clears throat> and that's why he pitched it that way. Yeah, she talked a little bit about the Dreaming Waking Hours, which was really interesting. Although the show mostly, ta- the panel mostly talked about the um, audiobook and a little bit about the Netflix Sandman show. Right. The, yeah. Probably the bigger news, though, was John Ridley talking a little bit about Batman, the Batman comic book that has been, I think, basically rumored, never announced for quite a while now. A lot of people were saying that um, he would take over Batman after J- uh, James Tinian. Which may not be the case now because it's what he, we found out from DC Comics specifically. They released this news right after his panel, John Ridley's panel, that the book will be a four-part series. Uh, it will focus on Lucius Fox's family, and <laughs> I think um, what was John Ridley's uh, quote that was quoted across the internet? It was something like, "He's forty percent, forty-seven percent sure that the uh, that his Batman will be black." Oh, okay. <laughs> Which was like, he didn't want to say, like, he probably didn't want to get in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I, AT&T, Warner Bros, DC, there's a lot of hands in that pot. Oh, yeah. Oh, a yeah. lot of cooks in the kitchen. A lot of them being made by committee. Oh, yeah. But uh, that would be um, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested. I, I'm very interested to see if it's part of continuity, because they haven't revealed that yet. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, but it comes out in January, and it's drawn by Nick Darrington. I got some things to say about continuity later in the show. Oh, boy. Continuity in the multiverse. And hypertime. Oh, hypertime. Also in the news this week was Speed Metal was announced. Uh, I think that's coming out September 23rd. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the Justice League book by Josh Williamson that's tying into Dark Knight's death metal. Yes. Um, They also started uh, teasing some more images, some more news about Endless Winter, which they pivoted, said is the next big event following metal. Mm-hmm. Um, they posted an image of Wonder Woman in some like winter gear. And then I think there was also a Batman one, and maybe I want to say a Superboy one. I may be wrong about that, but they had lines like <coughs> "We thought he was dead," <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, you know, a DC Comics event, indeed. Are you excited for that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm excited. I like to get cold. <laughs> I'm excited in a metatextual way what they're going to do in the absence of 5g Mm, yeah yeah some of the art that was attached to speed metal reminded me of some of the 5g stuff that was being released months ago so i wonder if there's i don't know i wonder if there's something spinning out of that there's a lot of imagery of clocks too which makes me nervous (laughs) about Watchmen. (laughs) one thing i just wanted to point out about the speed metal really quick it comes out the same day as x of swords part one Mm. 
and it's so it's now it's like it's like you know speed metal versus x of swords who will win uh, sorry ten x of swords. swords key of power of yeah. ten of swords will win <laughs> you know who will win though dark horse comics uh they just teamed up with comiXology to start printing their comiXology original series mm-hmm. um they've got four titles lined up for 2021 to be released but this is shocking news because Comixology has always been like, we're digital only, we're digital only. And now they're like, nope, we're now part of the big boys. We're now publishing comics. Yeah, I do wonder if this changed when Afterlift by Jason Liu and Chip Zdarsky won an Eisner. Mm, mm-hmm. If they were like, well, people are going to want to buy that. People will buy that. And um, it's coming out in trade version. I think all of them are issues one through five. And that's Afterlift, the Eisner Award winning series, Breaklands Volume 1, Youth by my friend Kurt Pyers, um, and the Black Ghost Volume 1. Mm-hmm. Um, more Comixology Originals print editions will also be announced at a later date. I think this is good for both parties because, as we were talking about last week, Dark Horse doesn't have much to publish right now. Yeah, yeah. It's a big win for them because, yeah, it's getting kind of slim pickings for them. Right. Um, It's really nice to see a partnership of this caliber, too, I think. Um, I think it, unfortunately, I think that there is still a group of people that doesn't see Comixology or Comixology Originals or webcomics or what have you as valid or as Mm -hmm. real comics. Right. right. Um, And so uh, hopefully that crowd will pick these up. And see mm-hmm. that you know the form the format translates to print editions just as easily. I wonder why Comicsology just didn't just do their own thing. Like, why did they need Dark Horse's help? Do you think they? I don't think Comicsology or Amazon is interested in having a publishing department. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Because in the press release, it says something about how Dark Horse is handling all the diamond distribution right. stuff. Yeah, I'm also wondering. Like, I wonder if they pitched to like Image and other publishers, or if Dark Horse was always their go-to. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it, like I said, I think it's mutually beneficial for yeah. sure. Also mutually beneficial between Dark Horse and someone else is the Mike Bignola, the quarantine sketchbook, which is coming out in 2021. Mm. Beneficial to the World Central Kitchen, who gets all the money uh, yes. from not only the sketches, but also this collection of uh, sketches. Yes. So that's cool. Yeah, I that's guess. good. Um, I know a lot of people are big fans of Bignola's artwork. I have been in the past. I do want to say again that there are some... John Arcuddy has leveled some very valid disputes against Mike Mignola um, with regards to IP, with regards to ignoring sexual assault and harassment in Dark Horse, um, all that sort of stuff. So I'm I'm actually glad to say, or uh, piggyback off what you were saying, that the money is going to charity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's for a good cause. Um, Comes out in March. Also, in the news, Lightbox Expo is going online September 11th through the 13th. This was uh, being orchestrated by Bobby Chu, who is uh, an artist uh, who's worked on movies like Alice in Wonderland, and Emerald City Comic Con founder Jim Demonicus. What's fascinating about this virtual convention is it actually costs money, which is, the I think, the first convention virtual convention to cost money so far this year, maybe, probably? Um, I think that, were there Comic-Con at home panels you had to pay to be part of? No, they were all free. No, they were all free. Okay. Yeah. I, I've seen virtual meet and greets as part of a convention, but this oh, is you're like right in there, yeah. admittance to the convention, uh, which opens and on they... August 24th. The internet, or the lowest tier is $1. The highest tier is $40 and gets you a tote bag. <laughs> Drawn by Mike Mignola. Yeah. um what's what's interesting is they've they've built this convention in a virtual space like it apparently you'll be able to like walk the halls of Mm. this con yeah Mm -hmm. 
Kind of neat. I, yeah. I actually am. My university uses some of that technology for tours around oh. campus and stuff. Oh, neat. Um, yeah, 3D that's cool. Map or Map 3D is the program. And uh, it's really, really effective and really cool. And you can do kind of the museum thing where you have someone talking over it or you can self-guide, um, that sort of stuff. So that's cool. That's neat. I think it would make yeah. me feel like I was missing a convention even more than normal, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because it's like it's not like you can watch it later. Let me know when you have VR. This actually uh, supports VR. Does it? Yes. Oh, wow. According to the I've, press release. I've yeah. got VR right here. <laughs> Uh, you might for a buck it might be worth just to <laughs> just tune walk in around yeah there are 300 artists that are going to be there uh, across the uh the world and uh so yeah it's it's an artist expo it's always been an artist expo yes. um but of course now it's virtual so it's kind of a brand new thing uh also announced this week ringo awards were announced the nominees for the 2020 ringo awards which were supposed to be held at the baltimore comic-con but will now be uh virtual because of of course the uh pandemic mm-hmm. Um, they will be announced October 24th. So there are lots of nominees to look through. I would recommend checking out the article on AIPTcomics.com just to see them all because there's, there's a lot of really good creators, not to mention webcomics with direct links to all those webcomics. So you can check them out yourself. Any Anything strike you in this list, Forrest? I don't think people are going to be too terribly surprised by what's here. Uh, best mm-hmm. Rider, you have Drew Edwards, Jeff Lemire, Mark Russell, Erica Schultz, and Mariko Tamaki. I am pulling for Mariko. Um, she won a ton of Eisners. Very, uh, very deserved. Mm-hmm. Best Artist, Chris Campana, Colleen Doran, Sanford Green, Rosemary Valero O'Connell, Mariana Pascota. Um, trying to pick the, the categories that people will be interested in on service level. Mm, yeah. um, best Series, Banjax, Bitterroot, Black Hammer, Age of Doom, Forgotten Home. Something is Killing the Children. A little surprised to see Something is Killing the Children. Yeah, it hasn't been nominated for a ton of things Right, so far. yeah, it's kind of a standout there. Best cover artist, um, Christian Ward. Should definitely go to him for uh, everything he does. Mm. Um, best original graphic novel is one that I've been meaning to read. They have The Adventures of Parker Reef to Save a Soul. They also have Bottom Feeders um, mm. by the writer that wrote Upgrade Soul, Ezra Clayton mm-hmm. Daniels. And we were both big fans of Upgrade Soul. We sure were. So I'm looking forward to that, or I've been meaning to read that. David Papost, who's been on this show, uh, Spencer and Locke 2, and Going to the Chapel are both nominated as well. I, I, I think I saw a very worthy uh, list of nom- nominees. I don't <laughs> yeah, know why I struggled sure. on that. Well, you know, what's funny is when I was looking through the list, I was like, this feels like a more legit, not to knock the Eisners, but it feels like a more legit list than the Eisners list this year. They, the Eisner's list felt more like a popularity contest to me. This feels more like there's a good mix of indie. There isn't a, t- a lot of superhero st- stuff on here. And for good reason, because most superhero stuff is, you know, it's just a bubblegum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I love, of course, but I don't know if it deserves <laughs> yeah, necessarily I, I award. Think my jaw is starting to get a little tired of the bubblegum. Right. So, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm excited for all these creators, and um, I am going to be, I'm going to be tuning in on October 24th. Yeah. Um, next up, we have a little bit of Marvel news, and I don't know if uh, our listeners play Fortnite, but man, the collaboration between Marvel and Fortnite was all over this last week, yes. I think, uh, capitalized by Marvel revealing that they'll be doing a ton of variant covers, Fortnite mashup with superhero variant covers um, in October and September. I was right. Damn it. So 
I think something that's striking about this news is that they have their best artists doing these covers. Their best. Yeah. I mean, Joe Caseda is doing one. He doesn't do many covers, let me tell you. So obviously this partnership is a huge deal for them, even though Fortnite just screwed themselves with Apple and Google. <laughs> eh, I mean, it's still, I have to laugh. Epic is still a billion dollar company. It is, yeah. it is. It's one of the most cash rich companies in the world right now. So I have to say the art is fun. I don't even play Fortnite and I'm like, wow, this is silly and I, you over know, the top. Every time I see Fortnite, I'm like, I think I would like to play some Fortnite. And then I try to mm. install Fortnite on my computer and it's 90 gigs and I'm not going to reserve oh, 90 gigs on my computer for Fortnite. Um, right. But this is this event or all of these covers. The banner thing here is um, Thor Nexus War written by Donny Cates. Mm -hmm. So and Donny tweeted that he heard. While walking the other day, he heard a kid asking his dad, are you going to get me the Thor Fortnite? <laughs> so um, mm. that's that's probably surreal and probably very cool. You know, I a lot of people have complaints about the Epic Game Store, about Tencent, and that sort of stuff. I certainly don't. I wish them all the best. I do think it's weird when they get certain opportunities that uh, maybe other comics writers or creators don't get. I know that there was a short story in an anthology recently written by the creative director of Fortnite that a lot of people thought that that didn't fit, but then also annoying radio podcast. So Charlemagne, the God got to write a storm comic as well. So I don't know. I'm not the authority. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. I did see a video of Dr. Doom doing the Fortnite dance. <laughs> you mean flossing or it was one of them. I don't even know which one it is. I have to say, it's shocking to see the new Galactus in the ads and stuff. Yeah. I mean, in the game itself. Yeah, like, yeah. That, and Thor, that's too. That's really new. Yeah. Yeah, his new costume? It's mm -hmm. crazy. This is actually, I think, written and takes place right before Donnie's Thor run started. That makes so, sense. So, um, Fortnite is part of the continuity. Just like Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, last bit of news, uh, Marvel turns 81 this week, uh, celebrating their uh, 81st birthday with a hashtag, Happy Birthday Marvel. If you use that hashtag on Monday, uh, you will apparently get to see tons of content. Um, they're celebrating throughout the day across all their platforms, and um, they showed it off with some art by Ron Lim and Israeli Sil Silva. Uh, showing Miles Morales eating cake upside down. I don't think that's good for digestion. I don't recommend it. Um, do not eat cake upside down, kids. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, I'm gonna. I'm. I'm very curious to see how the quality of content they push out for a, a kind of non-important birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. weird to find that middle ground, right? You need your mid-card content. Right. Right. I'm imagining they're going to do short videos with like Teeny Howard, Jerry Dugan, uh, all of the X office people saying what their favorite X-Men comic is or character is mm. or something like that. Um, but I can't imagine it being much more than that, much more substantial than that, I suppose. Maybe like a two hour lecture from Neil Adams about the growing earth. <laughs> I do think I'm it's sorry. interesting <laughs> how Marvel and DC's like seminal events kind of, uh, sync up because dc is also releasing detective comics 1027 which is the yes. 1000th appearance of batman mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. kind of right in the same time slot it's inter it's interesting you know it's yeah they're totally just competing right and, and they're just these parallel companies with 
making up events and awards and things to pat themselves <laughs> on the back. Um, right. It's it's weird. I don't know. I am excited for that Detective Comics just because there's some. I mean, Grant Morrison's yeah. in there and some, um, and it's extra sized. Um, one more thing to say in the news. Uh, tune in tomorrow on X Men Monday. It is Cyclops Day. There are more than one articles going up uh, uh, con- concerning Cyclops. So uh, <laughs> I'm concerned about Cyclops at all times. I mean, you should be. I think most X-Men fans are. What if he, like, had dreads? Would that be better? I no, don't know. No, that would be How bad. We... That would be really bad. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, next up, uh, our top books of the week. This is the segment where we talk about our top two favorite comic books out this week the two comics you are guaranteed to like not guaranteed Forrest what is your second favorite (laughs) book of the week my second favorite book of the week is Hellions number three written by Zeb Wells with art by Steven Segovia um Hellions has been the most effective and striking book to come out of the Dawn of X series thus far for me I've enjoyed every issue I've enjoyed every issue's blend of horror and comedy and tragedy all in equal measure i think zeb has a very good um balance that he's writing into the story and steven's doing an interesting job with the art uh have it cuts his mouth open with some broken glass in this issue Ooh, yeah that um, seems hard and then he's kind of talking with a um i guess you would call it a lisp an affect um throughout mm-hmm. the issue and it's played like for comedy and also for horror and, and that kind of both sides of the coinism is everything that I really like about Hellions. I also will say I love how Zeb is writing Madeline Pryor. I love how she be, has become the focal point of this series. I love how she's still this incredibly dark, almost irredeemable villain. Um, but that her point is entirely valid. And that Zeb is writing a point for her that is taking place in a kind of metatextual conversation with X-Men continuity and with X-Men fans. Um, A a while ago, Jordan White said in an X-Men Monday interview that Madeline Pryor was, quote, not really real. Mm. And this entire issue is almost kind of framed around that conversation. She actually says explicitly, it's a very bad idea to pretend I don't exist. Um, she's expressing some very valid frustrations about people have written her or the way that people think about her in that her story is always defined by her interactions with Scott and with Alex and with Jean, um, and that she desperately wants to be her own person, but that people won't recognize her for being her own person with her own value and traits and story to tell. Um, and that she thinks in in you know kind of the grand disgusting twist of all of it that the only way to get attention is to leave scott alex's severed head Hmm. um and i i really love that she has this incredibly valid interesting point that is for people in the know having a conversation like with editorial and with continuity and stuff because comic fans are too hyper focused on continuity Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just really really fascinating. She's he's doing a fantastic job of telling this story. I do think we talked a little bit off air about how it's decompressed. Um, yeah, that bothered me. Yeah, yeah, I think like the last three issues have all been taking place in kind of the same fight, and I think that there's some reason to say that that's a good way to set up Madeline's threat to even these incredibly powerful mutants like Havoc and Psylocke. Um, but also, it is wearing a little thin. I think I'm interested. I'm most interested to see where Hellions goes during Ten of Key of X of Swords. 
<laughs> of all of the books. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the first issue of Hellions, I think, is one of the best written issues of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, the decompression totally gave me flashbacks to older t- style Marvel storytelling, where it, was, it took six issues to get someone to get into a bar fight and then leave the bar. <laughs> right. right. Uh, one thing that I was, I mean, maybe you have an opinion on this. One thing that was concerning me when I was reading it was, was Zeb writing um, Madeline like, just crazy and like there wasn't enough because she was all over the place and that's interesting on one level but on the other level i was like oh my god is she kind of written in a half-baked way i mean obviously with the decompression we need to read no i i don't think so at all i think specifically she was having a really hard time intentionally expressing Mm -hmm. her frustrations Mm -hmm. and um you know like i was saying there's a lot of really big ideas about this person coming from an alternate universe, but having very real relationships with the characters in the quote-unquote main universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of think that the the focal point of all of it is right towards the end of the issue when she says, oh, well, nobody understands, so I'm going to cut your head off and leave it on Krakoa. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I think that that's a really good way to write a villain in that she is struggling with expressing her frustration. And hmm. her reliance turns to being violence or cruelty. Um, kind of like all the characters in Hellions are anyway. Yeah. I mean, half of them half of them are villains. Yeah, and they're willing to kill. Yeah. So And kill each other. Yeah. <laughs> I do love how weird that book is. Like all the characters are strange and Yeah, uh, they crack they're not your typical heroes. They crack op- Orphan Maker's body open and it melts a guy's <laughs> face. Um, it's good. Right, I really right. I really enjoy it. Nanny's great too. Uh, my second favorite of the book, book of the week is Suicide Squad number eight by Tom Taylor and Daniel uh, Daniel Semper. This is no surprise. Uh, this series has been expertly written, really good character writing. This issue in particular focuses on two brand new characters, Wink and the Airy. Um, we find out how they met and where they met, which is they were prisoners. And through that struggle, they form a bond and start a relationship and it all is just it could be poorly written but it isn't like you believe in the in these characters even though they're super brand new like we've only seen them for these eight issues and yet they feel so real mm-hmm. um there's also a, a, a key scene where the airy um corrects wink about her the, her use of pronouns with her or sorry with they <laughs> I'm, I'm even screwing it up and i think that was an important seen in the book because i mean it is so casually put in that it just feels natural it's not like it was drawing your attention even though i'm drawing attention to it when you read it it's very normal and it normalizes it and makes it okay and when i read that i was like this is the kind of work we need more of um so that people don't put it on blast for like being preachy it's it's just this is the way it is and this is how how we talk now and get over it right so like that kind of element woven into an action-heavy superhero book, or in this case, anti-hero book, um, I think is, is really important, and I think we need to see more of that. So on multiple levels, this book works, not only to like give us more insight into these characters and make them fleshed out and more real, but also there's that social aspect, and then um, it's just really well-paced and plotted. I think Semper is one of the best at plotting books. He drew the last issue as well. And it's like all taking place on Deadshot's lawn, but it's like captivating and exciting as he fights these SWAT team members. And the same kind of thing goes on in this book where there's, you know, fighting and they're 
kind of in these prisoner cells and it could be cramped and boring, but it's not. It's always interesting. Uh, so yeah, that's why I picked it. Great. Yeah. I'm looking, I have not read a single issue of Suicide Squad yet. Um, but I've heard really good things about it. I'm kind of looking forward to digging into it. DC takes mm. a long time to release traits. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Like when you have five ready to go, they need to yeah, be Marvel's stamped right there. and on the way. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Yeah. They're, maybe they're waiting to do the entire, I think they're going to do 12 issues. No, of it. That might be it. Yeah. Although, you know, everyone's like, oh, you know, because it's been revealed that Suicide Squad is not solicited. I have a feeling that this is all leading to a Task Force X series, but that's just me. Hmm. Could be. Who knows? What was your favorite comic of the week? My favorite comic of the week was That Texas Blood number 3 by Chris Condon and Jacob Phillips. Um, we didn't really talk about That Texas Blood number 2 because I forgot that it came out. Um, I did read it this week and then went right into number 3 and just fantastic, pulpy, noir, cinematic storytelling um it is it is very very much inspired by the coen brothers i think there's this really dark grim gallows humor to everything there's this kind of unfolding slowly really sinister underbelly to this small texas town um and at the end of this issue a tipping point where the central character decides that he is going to avenge the death of his brother whether or not he really liked his brother at all and it's this kind of gritty horror story about how the darkness pulls you in and how it's inescapable. And no matter if you live across the country with a new wife and a new life and stuff, those tendrils find their way back to you. Hmm. Um, it's depressing, <laughs> yeah. um, but it's just told so well. And generally, I really dislike the idea of comparing comics to cinema because they're very different mediums. But um, yeah. there's some very intentional decompression in this issue in particular, such as um, the main character st standing, um, playing chicken with a truck that's driving at him full speed across the desert. Um, and well, it plays almost exactly like a scene from, like, No Country for Old Men, for example. Nice. Um, it's just done very, very well. It's very intentional. I Image only has five issues of this solicited. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea at this juncture how that could be possible. <laughs> it feels so big. Yeah, it feels so big. And I, I do worry that they're going to sprint towards a kind of undeserved or quick ending. Hmm. Um, this, I think, at the very least, needs to be 12 issues. Hmm. Maybe they'll get an extension. But, but maybe there's something in the fourth issue that makes me go, oh, never mind. You know. Or it could be like season two or yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's, that's possible too. I, it reminds me a lot of Undone by Blood. And I think it's interesting how similar the modern day arcs in Undone by Blood and this are. Um, hmm. But there's a lot to be said and a lot of value to be garnered from comparing how and why these stories are different too. Mm -hmm. And what their inspirations are. Yeah, this is one I'm trade waiting for myself. So it's like the same with you. Well, Image will put it out on time. So, <laughs> yeah, they will. Yeah, no, DC just needs to, you know, make sure that's got all the labels on it and stuff. There's so many now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, I did, that was an unnecessary joke. Well, they got to run it by AT&T first. Is it okay if we put five? It's a DC 5G book. <laughs> that's perfect. My favorite book of the week was Win Number Three by James Tinian and Michael Dialnis. He uh, so this book already sold out. Um, Michael was saying on Twitter 
a few days ago, actually. And um, for good reason. Uh, this issue opens up the backstory quite a bit, where we get to see how the fantasy world of Pipetown has become so segregated and all fantasy things are outlawed. Uh, fantasy things being fantasy like creatures and people. And we find out about how all of these things were once co-mingling and it was okay. And it's a bit of a creationist story within the story, which I always love to see in comic book stories. Um, really just kind of expands the world, but also gives you a an extra, like it's almost like a bonus story on top of the story. Um, <clears throat> the book is also continues to be um, a really good allegory for a, a few different themes. And that is important as far as younger readers, especially who, you know, might glean something from it and, and may not see that context. Um, it's also exciting that the, the story is basically a chase sequence at this point where um, the bandaged man is trying to capture our main characters. And sort of surprisingly, there are some potentially major losses to the good guys, which really, you know, you don't see it enough in comics where like a, a character is introduced, you kind of fall in love with them or you like them or you can relate to them. And then they're just, they're, they're potentially Mm, and yeah, yeah. what does that mean for the main characters? Right. I mean, I think people kind of got that muscle memory for things like Walking Dead and Game of Thrones. Mm. But it, it takes it's shocking when it happens the first time, right? Um yeah. and I do think Wind in particular has done a really good job of having that dark thread running through it. It's right, not necessarily right. surprising or or it's earned, right? Mm -hmm. Cuz you expect some degree of darkness if you've read the first two issues which are longer than normal comic book issues because again this is a graphic novel split up um i yep. did i did definitely feel that it was earned yeah for sure yeah i guess it can take more chances when you when you <laughs> when you plot out a, a single story graphic right. novel and then you get split it up into issues right. Could you imagine if that was like the new process for publishers? All right, on this Spider-Man arc, I, we need you to do 12 issues, and uh, then we're going to figure out how to cut it up into 12 you issues. You know, I so. think an entirely different caliber or a different stable of artists and writers would be good at that than maybe mm. the people that are good at writing floppies right now. Yeah, like when we had uh, Zach, Zach Thompson and Lonnie Daniler on, they were talking about writing for Marvel, and they said it was like a race, right? right. Like, yeah. That's a different kind of writing where you can quickly put out 20-page script that makes sense, is entertaining, and there's a cliffhanger. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, Donny Cates is incredibly good at that. Every single yeah, floppy issue makes you want to read the next issue. But would yeah. that kind of tension or buildup or payoff work in a trade format or a graphic novel mm -hmm. format? I don't know. Yeah, like every like 20 or 30 pages, there's some big twist or some big right. reveal. I think it would feel like there's a lot of peaks and valleys. Mm, right. Well, that's it for top books of the week. In our next segment, top books for next week. Gotcha. <laughs> what's the number one book we're looking forward to out next week? Forrest, what's your number one book you're looking forward to? King of Nowhere, number five, written by Maxwell Prince with art by Tyler Jenkins. I have talked this book to death. It's the end of the series. I'm very much looking forward to it. I think it's going to be depressing, um, but I'm in that headspace. Nice. So that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> You should totally write that essay you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think I really wanted to wait until the final issue to see yeah. if what I've been garnering from the story is what they're going for. 
Um, but mm-hmm. I think that once this issue's out, I think that I definitely have an angle on it. And in particular, discussing kind of the razor thin line between human ingenuity and destructiveness um, mm-hmm. at a grand scale and also on a personal scale. Nice. Yeah. Given the times right. too, right? Right. Oh, man. So my most anticipated book is We Only Find Them When They're Dead Number One by Al Ewing and Simone DiMio. This is a book that um, a lot of people on Twitter have just like praised for quite some time. Um, so I guess it's made the rounds with, with folks. Um, and for good reason, it's, it's a story that, uh, how, how do I say this without spoiling? It? So there's, it's a story about these space travelers or they're, or, or actually they're actually, um, they do a job. They're, they're, uh, they're a crew and their job is to cut pieces off giant dead gods in outer space <laughs> that are floating around. And there's, there's like a, a, a value to what you cut off a, a dead god. And I won't tell you the cliffhanger because it's crazy and it puts the whole thing on, it, on its head. But uh, the first issue, which I've gotten to read early, it introduces the characters really well. It introduces the premise really well. And the visuals are insane. I, they, must be have, they must have been done in, digitally because there's stuff that's going on in there where you wouldn't have just drawn it. You would have drawn a spaceship, then overlaid it on some panels. Mm. Like the way it's all mm. laid out, it's like, it's intense. And the colors are insane too. Um, I think a lot of people are going to gravitate towards this if they like sci-fi or big, big ideas. And it's actually, it's a big idea that after I put it down, I was like, why did Al do it in a, his own creator-owned series and not just do this at Marvel? Because this would have been a cool story in like a Marvel story. But of course, it's creator-owned. So. I mean, I think it's important to creators to be able to have the grounds to tell their own stories and develop their own ideas and properties, right? It's, yeah. I think there's that constant fear that if you told this story in Guardians of the Galaxy or something, that it's going to be mm. overwritten by the next writer. Oh, that's true. Um, and, yeah. and I think Al really, really wants to be able to tell stories that stand on their own. Which is totally valid. Right. It, it's definitely an idea that I could see in like a Marvel event. Um, but yeah, totally recommend that. In our next segment, judging by the cover, Junior, we pick our favorite cover out art out next week. Uh, my favorite cover art is Wolverine number five by Adam Kubert. This, uh, I believe, it has something to do with the vampire storyline. I'm guessing. It, yeah. <laughs> Wolverine is falling out of a like a pile of uh, bats in the sky. Uh, but in those bats, you see a scary mouth or some sort of tiger mouth, or maybe it's a, a, a wolverine mouth. I don't know. Um, I love these covers where lots of little things make up an image. It's not quite the Joker cover that Jock did uh, that's famous, famous where the face oh, is yeah. made up of bats. The, uh, but, um, yeah. <laughs> that, the cover that sold a thousand short boxes. Is that oh, right? Oh, yeah, dude. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. This one may not uh, sell as many long boxes, but it's still really cool. I like the framing too, it, the way uh, Wolverine's at the bottom. It's it's very unconventional because usually with covers you want the the center to be like the focus because mm-hmm. that's where your eye is going to go. But this one, your kind of eye wraps around this pile of bats and um, makes me intrigued. I, I I'm not so sure if I'm sold on the vampire storyline, but we'll see. <laughs> it's interesting how if you flipped this cover the other way along mm-hmm. the vertical axis, um, it would look victorious. Oh, yeah, you're but right. It, in the way that he's falling all out of all of these bats into that stark redness, it feels very defeatist. Oh, that's so true. Wow. If you flipped it, he'd be like, yeah, yeah right. Die. Right. <laughs> that's a good observation. 
Uh, what's your favorite cover art out next My week? My favorite cover art out next week is Lost Soldiers number two cover art by Luca Casalonguida and Heather Moore. Um, this has a really strong red Lost Soldiers right in the uh, upper third. And then you have kind of this really interesting juxtaposition. Soldiers walking out of a medical tent in Vietnam against the background of like New York City or L.A., um, and there's this very interesting, intentional, strange juxtaposition about the same as Lost Soldiers is exploring narratively about the idea of bringing war home or having war um, down the street from you, which is, I mean, what America does to thousands of mil- hundreds. I almost said there were millions of other countries, <laughs> hundreds of other countries around the world, maybe in the galaxy um, and, and juxtaposing those two things. Um, against each other also really really incredible work of making all of these greens because there's quite a bit of it um differentiated from each other the upper half of it is a lot lighter it's against a um kind of acid washed green sky and then it gets a lot heavier and darker with dirt blackness splattered around the bottom of it um Mm. and then just kind of this one white and red red cross image on the medical tent um it's very effective and I think intentionally evocative of like camouflage. Mm-hmm. Um, just really, really good tonality that I know is married to the narrative. I like the color. It's it's like washed on. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That weathered feels, effect is, is really cool. It feels very uh, well-timed. In our next segment. All right. On with us is Zach Thompson to talk about Lonely Receiver. It's out September 2nd. Zach, how are you doing? I'm doing Pretty good, all things considered. <laughs> yes, the world is quite crazy. Bad news all the time, but there's good news when it comes to comics, at least. Comics is my solace. That's what keeps me happy. It really is. It's like the one joy. And I mean, just doing this podcast, it's like a reminder every week, like there are still great things going on with storytelling. Hell yeah. Speaking of which, is Lonely Receiver. Can you tell us a little bit about it and when and where the idea started? Yeah, um, so Lonely Receiver sort of came to me shortly after watching uh, Spike Jones's Her. Um, okay, mm, sure. I was very intrigued by sort of the, the idea of relationships with AI and that kind of thing. I, I should back up for a second and say the book is about a very traumatic breakup between a woman and her AI partner. They've been married for 10 years. The AI partner is supposed to be with you for life and designed to never leave you and to fulfill your every need. Um, unfortunately things are starting to kind of get a little clunky after 10 years and, um, things kind of blow up to a head after a fight on the first issue. And then we sort of descend into like a surrealist breakup nightmare. Um, Mm. (laughs) yeah. So the idea came from watching her and sort of realizing that like that breakup at the end of her, where she's like, I've sort of evolved and I'm in love with x amount of people and i you know i'm on a level that you could never comprehend i was like man if that happened to me i'd have a (laughs) mental breakdown like i would legitimately because it's so hard to fathom and then it kind of made me think about sort of the existential crisis that breakups can force you into where you're sort of forced to examine the person you thought you were versus the person you actually are thought you were in the context of the relationship i should say so I'm very intrigued in that sort of like memory is a a huge theme in a lot of the books that I I write. And um, I'm really intrigued into how we sort of 
self-erase and how we also self-edit and and sort of the lies that we tell ourselves. And Lonely Receivers, a book about the lies that you tell yourself catching up with you. So Lonely Receiver as a romance horror story is significantly different in tone and scope from something like the Western genre driven Undone by Blood. How do you differentiate between projects while working? Do you have different notebooks, different Word documents? Do you go to a different room in your house, apartment? Uh, so kind of like all of the above, the, like each book has like its own sort of soundtrack and like mood board, which is a huge thing for me. Um, also the place that I do the work, like I, I sort of pretty ritualistic with like, I only work on one thing a week. Okay. So I like, if it's like lonely receiver week, it's lonely receiver week. And that's sort of what I'm into. And it allows sort of clarity of like inspiration and visuals and that kind of stuff. And that's not to say that other things might creep in, but I try to keep it pretty clearly delineated because I feel like if you don't, like these things are so different from one another that if they start bleeding together, um, you get a dilution of both. And so it's really important to me to create the space between uh, the books that you're writing because like, man, there's so much stuff in your head that you, if you don't <laughs> create those boundaries, <laughs> you're like, you're going to go insane, I think. Mm. Yeah. And, and with such different themes, I can imagine it's like a bleed that would not make really make sense in one book or, or, or the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like, luckily, you know, of the projects that I've been working on this year, two of them have co-writers. So it's been a nice thing where like I can kind of drift in and be like, hey, I was thinking about this thing. And then like Lonnie and I will have a date set aside in the future to work on Undone by Blood. So we kind of go and we read and we and we sort of like come prepared um, and then like kind of immediately jump into it with one another. And we're like, OK, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I've been watching. And then we sort of download on one another and then we get into that world and, and same with Emily and I. And so that's been nice in that like, you know, there are things that I'll read for one book that may end up like I might read a Western and then a scene and it actually ends up inspiring something in Lonely Receiver, but it's more sort of the emotional tone rather than the, you know, the, the set dressing or, or what have you. Um, it's, it's weird. It, it, there's not a real way to like, I like to try and keep it separate, but my brain is a, a polluted nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you did a fantastic job intuiting our next question. Yeah. Uh, which was, if you ever find an idea suited for another project or vice versa, do you have any specific examples of that? Um, let me think. Um, okay, so I'm working on something currently that I was, I've been working on for about a year, and... Um, I was reading something for it as inspiration and a lot of it actually ended up uh, reflexively sort of influencing no one's rose. It was like, I didn't anticipate finding some stuff in there in a horror book in particular that uh, would inspire some stuff in no one's rose, but it sort of like made me think about things in that story differently. Um, and it came about it in a roundabout way. And it actually ended up like, sort of influencing a huge chunk of the fourth issue um, because I was reading a lot about mushrooms and mycology and uh, then we sort of realized that the spoilers for No One's Rose, I suppose, but uh, the second society, it would make so much more sense if they were sort of a bacterial fungus society and then that sort of like spurred that whole mm. thing on that just didn't exist in the original iteration of 
the outline. And those sorts of things happen because they're, you know, like every story sort of evolves from what you plan to what you actually end up writing. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to read like a book a week and, and trying to keep that sort of like, if I'm working on this project, then I'm going to read this book for this project during this week and sort of live in that space. But inevitably something happened the other night where I was reading for a new creator owned book and like really, really crazy horror creator owned book. That's very different than undone by blood, but I was reading something in it and I was like, Oh my God. And it something came to me about the second arc in undone by blood where it solved a major problem in this really weird roundabout way, because I was just thinking about how depressing the scene that I was reading was. And I was like, Oh, we could do something equally depressing and undone by blood. All right, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like I called Lonnie and I was like, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. He's like, that's awful. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a huge benefit. Cause you're basically like farming ideas, but in different ways so that they could possibly move over to a different book. Right. Yeah. I keep, um, Lonnie and I had this like practice when we first started writing together, um, where we created, uh, documents called idea pits, uh, where it's essentially like, huh. just, just dump everything you're thinking for a project into this ideas pit and we'll sort of go through it at some point and sort it out. And so I do that for everything now where I just go like, I have thoughts. I don't know if they're going to work. They're going to go in this garbage document. And then at some point <laughs> you have to like sort through the giant document and sort of make sense of it all. But it's really helpful because you sort of see your thinking process in real time. And so you can yeah. sort of see the stages of like when an idea started to crystallize and then maybe, you know, it's not useful at that time, but like two or three weeks down the road, you're like, Oh my God, like I thought that should go in issue one, but it ends up perfect for issue three. Cool. And then you kind of reverse engineer it. Lonely receiver is, is very claustrophobic. I'd say with like tight shots, uh, boxing the characters in, can you talk a little bit about working with, uh, artist Jen Hickman? Yeah. Uh, so Jen and I quickly sort of developed a really cool sort of uh, hive mind about this book where, um, you know, I talked a lot about how I wanted to be sort of a singular character examination and that I wanted it to be tight and claustrophobic. And we started talking about different ways that we could do that. And every time I sent Jen a script, they would come back to me and be like, okay, I'm thinking about this scene. And I think we can shoot it this way or we can do it this way. You might want to think about twisting this. So they were very collaborative in terms of the storytelling in the book as well. And uh, the visual language that we created around it, that there's tons of shots of eyes, for example. There's right. there's tons of indicators of, of time um, repeating over and over again. Sunrises, sunsets, skylines, that kind of thing. Um, because we wanted like time... And the the uh, the effects of time to be a huge part of the book, um, and sort of how you can start to lose yourself, um, but also this weird phenomenon of modern day loneliness is like you feel incredibly connected to all these people online, but you're sitting in your house alone or whatever, like endlessly doom scrolling, and so we talked a lot about how to create a really interesting visual language with the colors sort of always acting in sort of conflict with some of the emotion. Um, and also just creating that 
tightness and that constricting sort of feeling. And it gets worse and worse and worse until it kind of like breaks apart in the fourth issue, for lack of a better term. Um, And we really trying to play with people's expectations and give them something that like has fits of depression, but also fits of like manic happiness um, you guys read the first three issues, right? Yes. Yes. So yeah, you can probably see that chart where it's like it really kind of does a dip and dive every once in a while, and we really wanted to kind of create that push and pull because I don't know, I, like I went through um, like a pretty, I was married in my late twenties and went through a pretty devastating divorce that sort of like reoriented my entire world and. I found that, like, in periods of that, I I had inexplicable, like, manic happiness because I was like, I'm free, I'm finally free. Mm. And then it's, like, crippling sadness, like, you know, a day or two later. And I really was like, how can you do that in a book like this? And so I talked to Jen about that, and they were, they completely understood that and sort of, like, it resonated with them. And so, yeah, a lot of tinkering and a lot of, like, nitpicking on every page, but I think it paid off. Hmm. I was going to say that one thing that's immediately notable is how vibrant and kind of neon soaked lonely receiver is compared to, I think the usual horror tropes and especially other horror tropes that yourself and Lonnie have worked on. How do you go about creating that kind of uh, dissonant tone? Are there other non comic reference points that you use to evoke that stuff? Yeah. Like I think like, Nicholas Winding Refn does a really good job of bringing sort of like neon-y sort of visuals to things that are uh, like objectively horrifying. Um, I really, I really loved seeing Midsummer. Like Midsummer came out when I was writing issue one, and I I love the idea of something that disarms you slightly. Like you're like, oh, this is beautiful, but then as you get into it and you deal with it. Um, it sort of creeps under your skin, like using that neon color palette to invite people in and then be like, oh, but there's something rotten at the core here um, that you don't get immediately. So like the idea being that like people see it and they're like, ooh, cool, I want to read this. This looks fun and sexy. And then they're like, oh God, I feel awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was a really, I, I was trying to think about like, I, I, wear a lot of bright clothing and, and dress really like flamboyantly. But, um, I love horror. I love like death and destruction and, you know, all kinds of just awful things. And that has always been a part of my personality that people, um, don't fully understand. They're like, what do you mean? Like, how do you love horror? That kind of thing. And so it's been interesting. I was like, how can I do something that's more emblematic of my personality where I'm like, just because it's, bright and neon soaked doesn't mean it's not uh hiding a simmering darkness <laughs> mm. yeah it's like it it l- lulls you in in a way right and then it like strikes yeah that's the um, point i was enamored with simon Bolin's lettering um i i noticed early on i think it's the first yeah it's the first issue there's a, su- a subtle moment where katrine's ai partner is being made and the text actually shifts from white to black and yeah. there are other sub- subtleties like that. Are, the, are how did those little ideas come together? Um, that was a so um, I should back up for a second. And say 
working with Hassan on Undone by Blood made me realize the power of lettering and the little tiny changes you can make. And so I was a nightmare to Simon when he came onto the book because I was like, look, I'm going to be upfront with you. I want to do some fucking crazy things with the lettering. <laughs> and this is probably not going to be an easy book to letter, but I was like, there's all, there's intention behind everything. So I was like, like, let's just jump on a call. I'll explain sort of my approach to everything. And like, you can do whatever you want, but just like, I want things to evoke a certain weirdness. And so, you know, there's a character in the book that is lettered very specifically. The, the language is, uh, you know, delivered in a very specific way and that was all in the script um because i just had this bug in my ear about like i guess it's funny but like seeing undone by blood made me realize how much the reading experience can be changed by subtleties and lettering and so now um i'm awful to work with because i talk to every (laughs) every letterer that i work with and i'm like look I don't want black text in a white caption box. I don't. And then, you know, like Katrin's uh, white on pink, but there's a reason for that. And it doesn't actually become fully crystallized until the fifth issue um, where you sort of see why it's that way. And same with the, the sort of like robotic lettering that sort of shifts. I really wanted people to experience this sort of like dichotomy between this is flesh being like weaved in front of her in real time, but this should feel very cold and alien and sort of like disconnected from that warmth. And then like even more so, you know, when they kiss and it's like, <laughs> yeah. a I was like, what, what is happening? <laughs> yeah. And like, I wanted that to be disarming, right. I wanted it to be like, yeah. no, this is fucking weird. Like people shouldn't be doing this. Like, and that's the same thing with the phone. The phone being flesh is supposed to be this reminder of the fact that like, this is weird and alien and you know, it will have a payoff, but I'm, I'm, I seeded it early to just show it to people. And I'm hoping that when it comes out, people will see that and be like, what the fuck is that thing? And then I'm like, sorry, you're going to have to go five months before you know what it is. When you're, I think that there's a certain genre or a certain type of horror that is reliant upon images being symbols for other things. And you were touching on that a little bit. I would say, you know, like Silent Hill is really famous for that. There's thousands of thousands of forum pages about this monster looks like this because of this. Um, do you do you create images or specific moments to reference other things in the story or is that kind of accidental? Um, it's all sort of made with intention. I think okay. that like one of the things that's interesting, I, so I should back up for a second and just say some of these things will not be presented clearly to people because I have a lot of fun with something that means something to me, but also just giving it to people without full context to let them make up their own mind about what it means to them. Because and there will be certain things that will pay off very clearly because they're part of the plot or part of uh, Katrin's journey. But um, there's a lot of horror that I feel like can lose itself in over-explaining the, the minutia of the world. And like, I believe that when the book is presented in full, there's enough material for people to make pretty educated guesses about what everything they're seeing is but it will never come out and very clearly be like, this is this because 
that's just not super interesting to me. Um, I I find that like I've I've become recently enamored with like weird fiction and and sort of like more of a immersive world building style where. Um, this is probably a knee-jerk response to writing superhero comics for so long, but the idea being that, like, people don't sit around in a world and be like, this flesh phone is crazy when it was invented <laughs> years <laughs> right. ago. It just completely changed the world. It's like, it's a matter of fact for these people. And, and so they don't stand around and they don't talk about it. And, like, you know, I had to uh, push back a little bit with Aftershock because, you know, mm. it got weirder and weirder. And, like, the... You know, the uh, happy medium was I got to write two pages of like a user's manual for the flesh phone that's in the back of issue one, where it sort of explains what it is, but not quite, um, because mm -hmm. I wanted it to evoke this like you're living in this world and you don't, you know, people do, like I said, people just don't stand around and be like, this is a crazy invention that was, you know, <laughs> when's the last time people talked to you about the like the first iPhone and how amazing right. it is, right. you know, it's like, that's just bullshit. That that's just comic book storytelling bullshit that I want to get far away from. I was just going to say, it's like a, a tradition that, you know, exists in a lot of Cronenberg's work where like he has very uncanny worlds with very strange technology, but at no point does someone turn to the camera and go, this is what this is, or this is what this means. It's just characters existing in a world, taking these things as matter of fact. Mm -hmm. It's more likely that you would have to explain an iPod shuffle to someone than an iPod or an iPhone uh, X or whatever the number is at this point. Yeah, and um, like, I I feel like you know people are smart enough that they can take the stand-in, right? They're they're like, oh, okay, yeah, this is just a stand-in for a smartphone, and like mm. it. I don't know. I I am ad. I fight everyone at every point. Like when people are like, oh, just put Twitter in your book. I'm like, no. It will never, there's never going to be anything modern in my stuff because I just don't like attaching it to that sort of like current moment. It just doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. I actually really liked how you unveiled the sci-fi stuff and the technology. It was, it was like a slow burn. It was almost like you were feeding us morsels just enough to keep us going, keep us like even more interested as we go along. And Actually, the way you unveiled it slowly, it makes me wonder, was there any tech or sci-fi ideas that you had to leave on the cutting room floor? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot that I wish I was able to get into with a world like this because of, like, you know, it begs a lot of questions about how much information you would have to give a company like this in order for them to, like, make an AI partner for you that would fulfill your needs, emotional, physical, otherwise. Um and, you know, the book gets a little bit more into that as the fourth and fifth issues come along. But there's also, like, um, the fourth issue sort of deals with, like, a subculture that exists around the phones um, where people have been, like, modding them and getting them to do things that they're not supposed to do. Um, and that whole world, like, I could write a whole book about that and what that is and um, mm. the privacy rights that come with it and the idea that, like, there's the sort of lore of these phones is that they like monitor your heart rate. They monitor all of your internal sort of organs and they, they're sort of that helpful sort of almost the same thing that uh, Elon Musk like announced like yesterday where it's like, right. Hey, you're not oh, yeah. enough. Yeah. And like, that's a huge part of where I think technology is going. Right. That's sort of like 
uh, transhumanism. Um, and like we get into that in the third issue a little bit, and then it, it really jumps off the deep end in the fourth issue because that to me is like, if you're going to talk about these things, if you're going to talk about technology and, and sort of the the line between the things we use uh, and us blurring, then you have a sort of, that's a horrifying scenario. And I wish that I could write an entire book about it, but I feel like it, you know, at a certain point it gets boring because you're sort of like bogged down and like, look how horrifying this is. And it's coming. Like you should be, <laughs> you know? so it's all always like that tightrope walk between giving people enough um, to make them interested in learning more, but never too much where you're just like, Oh, now I'm just worried about reality. So you're saying there won't be a lonely receiver guidebook? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, like uh, a lot of what uh, didn't make it into the book, I actually sort of like have taken and uh, absorbed some of it and put it into a new thing. That's sort of oh, like cool. kind of a spiritual sequel, but not quite. That's the next thing that I'm doing at Aftershock. So we had, and you touched on this just a little bit, but we've spoken previously about your research process for No One's Rose. Did you dive into similar research efforts for Lonely Receiver? Did you go out and research, you know, the kind of cyberpunk community that is modding phones? Or are you just kind of doing the knee-jerk reaction to, like, everybody has this technology, what's the natural conclusion? Um, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I think, like, with this kind of stuff, I can't, I feel like I can't write it authentically if I don't look at the people who are already sort of experiencing these things and and at least sort of do my due diligence into the kind of looking into ways that, you know, just subtle things like the way that people rationalize to themselves. Like I was looking at a lot of videos of people who are like, like biohacking and that kind of thing. And sure. Like, yeah. You know, just like crazy shit where people are doing stuff where they're like cutting open their body and they're like completely fine with it and the way that they talk to themselves about it and the way that they sort of believe that that's a sort of level of evolution or, or whatever. And then blending that with also like literary influences and, and uh, sort of the more sort of like emotional arc of the character that's, you know, based on my own life, but also listening to people's conversations about, breakups or or listening to and like i one thing that ended up really influencing issue two was like i listened to an hour-long interview with a woman who just talked about uh living with an incredibly abusive husband and then she just all of a sudden like cut out of the relationship and went and started like researching cranes in like uh northern oh yeah Europe? i read that yeah the crane really life. fantastic yeah, yeah, living in the and, natural reserve and yeah. Yeah, and so like I read that and I was like, oh my God, this is so interesting because there's there's so much there about, you know, the role that you're expected to fulfill as a wife or the role that you're expected to fulfill as a partner and how um, when something traumatic happens to you, your first response is to sort of like self-erase um, rather, than, rather than like deal with the uncomfortable feelings you're like no i'm not supposed to have these feelings i i should just sort of change myself and so you know doing research into how people cope with trauma and talking to friends who've been through traumatic experiences channeling some of my own i've you know 
Uh, there's like parts of like my diary that ended up into the in the book that like I'll never point out what is actually me and and what is other people, but it sort of like it felt right to do something like this with that level of authenticity and sincerity that I feel like people like don't read a whole lot of comics about trauma or uh, especially when it comes to like romance and breakups. There's not a real lot of yeah, authenticity is the the best word for it. I think in the in the medium, right? There's a there's a layer of like realism to it all that it probably will strike people um, close to home. I'm hoping it makes people depressed. Well, I was, I was <laughs> just gonna say by way of compliment that I think that for the horror elements and then also for the romantic and emotional elements that those things that are subconsciously evocative or touch on the shared human experience are in some ways incredibly depressing, but also very uh, therapeutic. And did you find exploring your own diary and your own relationship and stuff therapeutic? Or was it like, uh, I really have, it's hard to put yourself in the mindset to revisit that? I mean, it's a little bit of both. Like we, sure. half halfway through the book, um, Jen uh, like messaged me and was like, I just need to know if you're, a crazy person or not. And I was like, excuse me. <laughs> um, and we, we got on the phone and just chatted and we sort of just like opened up to one another because they were sort of seeing some things in the book that was really affecting them. And I was being very sort of authentic with my own experience. And so we had this like really lovely sort of heart to heart where we opened up to one another and sort of told each other about our past and sort of got to know each other a lot better. And that really, helped the book towards the last couple of issues because we we had this like shared knowledge of one another that was um you know uh revealing but it's, it, that's what happens when you do books like this with people because it asks a lot of people emotionally you can't there was only we could only go for so long before we were going to get to that point and um, you know, Jen knows a lot more about me than most of my collaborators at this point, but um, I feel like that authenticity and, and the way that we shared comes through in the way that the art is on the page and the way that the voiceover comes through. And I think that that was really important because, I don't know, I just, like, part of me is like, no one's going to expect this coming from me, <laughs> which sure. is cool. Uh, but the other part of me is just like, I find uh, there's a lot of power in going like, hey, I feel all of these complex things and I'm going to present you with something that makes me feel like I'm standing here naked, but I hope that you find some solidarity in it. And um, that's sort of my favorite type of writing because it's like, it's terrifying. Like, I'm absolutely petrified to release this book into the world in like four days, but I'm also really excited for what people will find with it and, and hoping that if they take the whole journey with us, that they'll find healing in it. It may be hurtful at some times, but the, it does end in a very hopeful and interesting way. Um, because I feel like that's sort of what it means to explore emotional trauma is it gets really, really dark. And then you slowly go like, okay, maybe I have a handle on this thing now. All right. All right. And then you sort of like break through and you find this new sort of version of yourself. That's interesting. Like the character goes through all these swings when you're writing a character like this. Is it 
difficult to have them be likable or relatable, but then also you kind of hate them a little bit. Or <laughs> maybe you don't even like them at certain times. Is it difficult to balance all that out so that, you know, the reader is getting the character you want rather than, you know what I mean? Cause like you could make the character too unlikable and then all of a sudden everyone hates the character. Yeah. It, it's always a tough thing. I mean, like, you know, again, uh, that's sort of, uh, how we feel about ourselves at any given time, right? Where you're like, you wake up one day and you're like, fuck yeah, I'm awesome. Like this life is good. And then, you know, three hours later, you're like, I'm a fucking failure piece of shit. And I want to experience, I want people to experience that with a character, but there is always like a fine line to walk with sort of how, uh, how awful you make them. But I, this story in particular, the protagonist is the antagonist in different scenes, right? And I think that that's mm -hmm. sort of a fine line to walk, but, you know, there's a point at which people will start to realize, like, oh, shit, I think she's disassociating. <laughs> and I really wanted that to sort of be a subtle thing that slowly starts to come in, and you'll, there's going to be pieces of it that will be fairly evident. I mean, the book itself begins on, like, a note of, like, is this a memory? Is this something that really happened? Is this, and I wanted to evoke that sort of like wishy-washy story that we tell ourselves. And, you know, as it goes on, the things that you've been told might not actually be entirely true because <coughs> often we lie to ourselves in the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's there's so much that we could talk about, Zach. We could have you on for hours um, just <laughs> just talking about, you know, false memories and PTSD and relationships and those sorts of things. Um, I did want to shift gears just a bit. Can you tell That's us true. anything about your coming Angel edition to the Boom Buffyverse? Did Boom approach you or vice versa? What's your favorite Angel episode and why is it the puppet one? <laughs> um, so Boom did approach me uh, like uh, probably at this point, like it feels like two years ago, but it was definitely sometime this year. Um, that's how the year's going. Yeah. It was before the pandemic and they were like, Hey, do you have any interest in any Buffy stuff? And I was like, honestly, like, yes, like that's sort of, uh, the, those two shows helped define my voice at a young age. They came out kind of at the perfect time for me, but it sort of was like a, just a vague like feeler. And then what ended up happening is Brian and Gleb decided to leave the series and they're like, Hey, do you want to come onto the book? And I was like, yeah, that'd be, a, that, I would love to write Angel and Spike. Like that'd be awesome. And uh, they were like, yeah. And we're thinking of getting Hayden Sherman. And I was like, how fast do I sign up? <laughs> how, how quickly can I get my signature on this contract? Um, and like, the unfortunate reality is that like we are we're only doing three issues, which is kind of painful. Mm. Um, we were greenlit for twelve, uh, and then the pandemic hit, and we got our last two arcs cut. Um, so there's a lot of things that we wanted to do that we're not going to get a chance to do. However, Hayden and I are having a ton of fun, and. Uh, I got to introduce a Buffy character into the angel world that never crossed over into the angel world, um, which I'm super excited about. And so that character joins like 
Team Angel and, you know, decidedly just to try and mix it up and make it my own and also, you know, uh, push things in a little bit different direction. And then our arc sort of ends on a very interesting note that leaves it very open-ended for something that could come next, which I can't talk too much about, but... (laughs) um, got to be very playful and I got to like, that was something I could write with my eyes closed. I just know Angel's voice and know Spike's voice so well. And, um, it was real. I'm already done of all my work on it. And it's, it was a really huge privilege to kind of just step into that world briefly. And also while I'm at it, because I think it's really interesting, I remembered them as being, uh, progressive, let's just say, and uh, watching it as a man in my 30s uh, who's just had a lot of different life experiences, I was like, holy shit, these shows are problematic. Yes, uh, yeah. yes. My wife watches them, watches Buffy and Angel every year. And I think lived experiences every year, I'm like, huh, that's yeah. different than I remember. So my issues are a very sort of reflexive uh, look at that kind of thing um, because I was like, I can't write this without sort of addressing some of the bullshit misogyny that's inherent in in the book and in the character, that kind of thing. And uh, to Boom's credit, they were so down with that. They were just like, look, this isn't for fans of the original show. This is for people who are you know, teens who want to find themselves in this world. So oh, by that's so means, interesting. Yeah. And so they were just like, you know, dismantle it, like do whatever the fuck you want. And the unfortunate fact is like, there was something in our second arc that was approved and approved by Joss that uh, w- was going to finally make something that was like heavy subtext into very literal text. And unfortunately it is not going to happen anymore, but maybe down the road, yeah, if it sells really well, do you think they could put you on for another arc? I, uh, they have plans. There's plans to do something interesting. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Could you like send me stuff. your scripts with the characters' names changed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> Are you going to read that out loud with your wife uh, first? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's... Very interesting. I, I was just, I, I was really like just swinging for the fences being like, there's no way they'll approve this. And then they're like, yeah, that sounds good. And I was like, holy shit. Okay. Was that wild knowing that Joss actually signed off on it too? Um, yeah, I did my research a little bit to see if I could tee this up for success because I'm a freak. And I was like, well, I'm going to go look at old interviews and just see what he said about this particular thing. And then I was able to find him heavily endorsing it from like 20 years ago. And I was like, okay, here we go. And so that's sort of how I used it to appeal to them. And then I think that's how it got approved. Sounds like it's meant to be then. Hopefully. Last but not least, congrats on a second arc of Undone by Blood. Thank you. Yeah, crazy. Uh, Very surreal to have that news in the face of all this. Can you talk a little bit about writing the second arc and the process of getting a story extended or in creating... We're leaving loose ends uh, with the original series. Yeah, totally. Um, so early on this year, we sort of had a call with Aftershock where they were like, look, like this book is doing well and the audience seems to be growing, um, which is, you know, uh, 
counterintuitive to everything in comics, we found that we were gaining readers per issue, um, which I don't understand, but <laughs> I'm happy for it. Um, and so there was a lot of talk about, well, do you continue Ethel's story or do you sort of let her sort of get on with her life? And Lottie and I felt it was really important that we let her sort of get on with her life because the book was always in sort of structured as five issues to tell her story and then be done with it. But as you often do when you finish a book, you, we started talking like late last year about, well, what if this was an anthology? What if this is more of like a criminal type of thing where you could sort of look at the generational uh, impact of the Western in American society and, and sort of what it had, because the, the Western as a genre says so much about America. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And I feel like it's really funny to me that two Canadians <laughs> are writing <laughs> about American history and like uh, American mythology, but it sort of is like the, you know, it's the precursor to superheroes. It, it, it is uh, an incredibly violent colonial sort of art form that takes a lot of pride in like killing people because that's what, cool like cool guys do like it's just that's how you get justice and it's like there's so much uh to unpack with that uh especially given the current cultural moment and so we were like okay let's turn this into an anthology let's look at the generational effect of the western across american history um so the idea is for the series going forward is that every arc will sort of take a look at a different part of American history with a character who has uh, picked up a Solomon Eaton novel and is inspired to take justice into their own hands. Um, Every arc will have that sort of undone by blood or with the title of whatever the new Western novel is. Oh, cool. The idea being that we will um, go for as long as they possibly let us tell this story um, but you'll all you'll see different eras of Solomon's life and how that character changed and the way that that character was written at different times in American history, as well as the cultural impact of a mythological character like that. Um, so you know the second arc takes place in 1934, um, and it follows someone who is like a postal worker um, who is deciding to take back from America what they took from him. Um, we uh, didn't know all of this USPS stuff was coming uh, when we decided to do this, but it, it ends up being even more relevant than, than we originally anticipated. But we did pick 1934 because it is a period much like 2020 where, you know, it's the middle of the Great Depression. The book takes place in the Dust Bowl and uh, the federal government was basically like, look, there's no help coming. You know, you guys are fucked. Take care of each other. And I think there's a lot of power in looking at the past to tell stories about the present. Mm. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's what Undone by Blood's sort of mission statement is. And that's what Lonnie and I want to keep doing. And that's what Sammy wants to keep doing. And, you know, uh, not for nothing, but we get to get everyone back together because we finished working on Undone by Blood. Oh, shit. Like, we were writing that book at the same time we were writing marvelous x-men which is like oh wow yeah two years ago yeah a long time ago and then it it 
was it was one of those rare moments where we had banked the whole book before we launched. So the whole book was done um, in late 2019. And then when we launched in February, we knew the whole book was done. So like Sammy's gone and drawn a whole other book that will come out. <laughs> and that was coming back onto Undone by Blood um, because he's a machine and just like unlike anyone I've ever seen. Um, and then like, you know, we get to get him to come back, which is awesome because we loved working with him and he's just so suited to our style. And then getting to work with Jason and developing like a new look for the 1930s with a color palette. <coughs> and then getting to go back into that Western world too. It's going to be, um, it's just really exciting. I don't know, like uh, it, getting to do a second arc was always a dream of anything. Um, and so to be able to do it in a way that feels like um, that people are going to get a complete story every time, I think is really important. I'm starting to realize that the utility of um, picking something up and having a complete story is more powerful than just like, here's another chapter in this ongoing saga that, you know, will never, <laughs> <It may> never <laughs> end. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's hard, right? Cause it's like the comics are changing quite a bit and the way that people are reading them are changing quite a bit. And, you know, if you look at like Brubaker and Phillips, that's a that's a approach that they've had baked into their sort of like crime books is like you pick it up and you get a complete story. And, um, you know, it's no secret that we both absolutely love those guys. And so it made a lot of sense to us. That was like, well, how do you make this accessible for people? If you didn't read the first arc, you can read the second arc and you mm -hmm. you'll have a elevated understanding of Saul and some of the reoccurring characters that we're going to sprinkle in to the world, but it won't hurt you if you didn't have it. In fact, you'll be able to finish it and then go like, holy shit, there's another story. Cool. And sort of like you could read them completely out of order and still enjoy them. Mm. Um, which is like, I think important. And like, you know, if we get to go forever, we have like a crazy sort of like meta, meta, meta fictional version. <laughs> oh no. That, that would take place. That's in cool modern day that's like crazy and then we have something like set during world war one that we'd like to do and then something that would like maybe follow uh benny from ethel story uh and where he goes uh, so like lots of opportunity the idea being that like we want to do something set if we could pie in the sky it every decade um since like 1900 when these novels started uh, being written so like basically like 12 separate arcs that cover 10 year chunks of american history so what are you going to do in 70 years when you're like the new stan lee there's an undone by blood multiverse <laughs> of movies <laughs> and people just they just love them there's like 80 movies what, what, what will be your uh, your final epitaph i have <laughs> i mean like okay <laughs> the, the the pie in the sky is like the idea it's so dumb and it will never get made so i'll tell you guys about it um sure is like this that these legacies of of novels have been part of american history for 120 years there's been films made of solomon and all this kind of stuff and then there's this like murderer that comes out of the woodwork um <clears throat> who starts killing people based on the solomon eaton novels and uh -huh. it is a team of like 12 people online working together, reading all of these novels out of order to find clues. So you see a bunch of scenes of Saul from all kinds of different books. 
<laughs> all out of context as people try and piece <laughs> together a large scale like murder that's like gripping all of America. But you know, it's like meta to a level where I don't think the publisher would ever let us do it. <laughs> You might lose your mind trying to put it all together and make it Honestly. make sense too, right? Yeah, yeah. Lonnie and I hate ourselves. That's what we, we tell ourselves. <laughs> is that we like try and make it very difficult for ourselves, but like keeps it fun. For sure, yeah. It's a problem to solve. Well, Zach Thompson, thank you so much for being on the show. Lonely Receivers out September 2nd. And uh, yeah, go pick it up. It's from Aftershock Comics. Thank you for having me, guys. Yeah, thank you. Always. It's a pleasure. 